Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to episode 41 of the podcast. This episode is a conversation with writer and public speaker Nick Page. And I'll introduce Nick at the beginning of the interview. Uh, For now, just to remind you that if you are interested in coming on our writer's residential course in November in the Lake District, that is now booking up. So if you want to come along, please do let us know soon. You can drop me a line, andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com, or you can go straight to the website, find out about the course there. It's www.andrewjchamberlain.com firstpagecourses.com. I hope you enjoy this episode. I've been looking forward to having Nick on the podcast for some time now. We had some laughs and I learned something and I think you will as well. So here's our conversation. Hi everyone and welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt. My guest today is the writer, speaker and historian Nick Page. Hi Nick, good to have you with us. Hi there, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Nick describes himself as an unlicensed historian, mm. and maybe we'll unpack that a little bit later on. Uh, he's a Christian, a scholar, and he has combined all of these features to produce over 60 books, including drama and children's books, practical resources for the church, and secular history. Uh, he demonstrates that most essential of qualities, from my point of view, which is an unwavering commitment to authenticity. Uh, he's formerly director and writer of the Ambush Theatre Company in Watford, and he was a director of the Oasis Trust as well. He's been a speaker and writer for over 15 years. So Nick, great to have you with us. Although I've given you a little bit of an introduction, I'd like to start by letting you tell us a little bit about yourself in your own words, the kind of books you write, who you are, what you do. Great. Well, I'm a a writer for hire. (laughs) I I have my own projects, but for since about 1996, I've been a freelance writer, and so doing all kinds of stuff. I started off, I started off way back when I left university, trying to write for radio, writing uh, comedy. I got a few bits, but not very much. Then I kind of went into writing for the theatre company, which you mentioned, and then uh, came out of that and went and worked in London for the Oasis Trust for a while. And then after that, I was ending up doing copywriting, I've done videos, I do books, I do all kinds of stuff, and and so it's a pretty sort of varied. CV. I'm a, I'm a, um, in a long and illustrious tradition of hacks, really. You know, um, <laughs> you know, writer for hire and uh, never short of an opinion. And uh, I think you are also a husband and dad. Is that correct? Oh, uh, I am indeed. Yes, as the, at least I still am at them. I was when I came into the office, so okay. I hope that it's still the same. <laughs> yeah, I've got a wife, 30, 30 years married to her. She's a remarkable, saintly woman, and three three teenage daughters, um, and therefore no hair. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so um, you told us a little bit about how you got into the writing game. Is there mm. anything else you want to say to expand on that? I mean, why why are you a writer? How how have you got to where you've got to? Oh gosh, well I think it goes way back. I think it's it's. Um, I, I remember at school when I was about um, nine or ten, sort of writing little books and stapling them together and selling them to my friends. And uh, there were sort of comedy books in the style of Spike Milligan. It was very yeah. popular at that time. So I guess I was always going to be a writer or a publisher. Mm. I chose the way of virtue <laughs> and uh, ended up as a writer, so <laughs> the way of poverty as well. And, um, yeah, so I, I, looking back, you can kind of see it. I, I didn't intend that, but um, I think the gift just sort of emerged, really. And, and you have got to have, you know, a gift, really. You've got to have some ability. You can yes, you can always yes. make that ability better, but I think there's got to be something there to start with, really. So that that's, yeah. that's kind of how it happened, really. 
really. Um, I came out of university and I'd done a little bit of writing while I was there and then just thought I'd give it a go, really. Yeah, so that's how it happened. And, and one thing has always led to another. I've never had a career plan in my life. Okay. Like, opportunities come along and, and I just sort of think, oh, that'd be, have a go at that, would be nice. <laughs> Okay. It sounds like you were, in fact, a pioneer of self-publishing then, if you were selling your stuff to, to your friends at school. I, I guess I was way back then. I guess there wasn't it wasn't much... Um, I don't know how well they were put together, those books. I doubt many of them have survived. Let's put it <laughs> well, the customers paid for them. Yeah. <laughs> now, you call yourself, uh, these are your words, an unlicensed historian. What, what do you mean by that? I wanted to explore that phrase a little bit with you in this, in yeah. this chat. What do you mean by that? Well, I think it's a slight deflection in a way. I'm not I, so basically what happened in I suppose about 2006 onwards, 2007. Was I got really fascinated by history and I started to really explore it. And, um, and I, but I'm not an academic historian. I, I didn't study history at university, so I've mm. I've, I've sort of learned myself, as it were. And so I, I think the unlicensed bit is just a kind of bit of deflection, really. It's it it comes from a um, guy who wrote a history a book of a history of historians, and he was talking about how the academic discipline in history actually was a sort of late Victorian thing. And before then, there weren't such things as professional historians. And, and he sort of, he typified that sort of the degree in history as a kind of license to teach history. So I've always viewed myself as not having a degree, therefore I'm unlicensed. But I think it, I think it also for me, it's, it, it's a kind of ind- badge of independence as well. I don't, I don't owe allegiance to any strand of academia. I don't owe allegiance to any university. I'm, I'm free. I can I do what, say what I want, really. I've got to back it yeah. up. I mean, you know, I try as best I can when I write history to do things properly and you know, to do it, uh, to, to you know, cite my sources, to, to do all the proper research, all the all the hard legwork, and I think on the whole I've done yeah. that. But you know, at the end of the day, they're my books; they've got my name on it, so I kind of feel well. I, I'm going to say what I want to say in them. Yeah, so I guess you have the freedom to say what you want to say, but you also have the responsibility mm. to, to back up what you're saying with with the research that you do. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, you've got to do the, you've got to do the work. You've got to do the hard yards. You've got to read a lot. You've got to learn a lot. Absolutely. But also, I think you've got to have that little spark of imagination to actually. And this is possibly where I, where it's helped me actually coming into it from from left field, as it were, is that, you know to actually follow some interesting questions and to put yourself imaginatively in into the situation of history and therefore to go off down some interesting alleyways. So we're going to explore in, in, in a couple of moments how the kind of things that you're describing their history can actually work in the context of the craft of writing in terms of both pure history um, mm. and in terms of turning history into story. When I was introducing you, I was a little bit tempted to call you a radical, actually, and to describe you as a, as a, as a radical. And I did wonder, coming back to this unlicensed historian, whether there is a sense as well in which you are a bit outside of the mainstream of just doing your own thing you kind of alluded to this when you said you you know you don't you're not beholden to anyone in terms of what you write well I, I don't know I mean you know one's always wary of saying hey I'm a radical I've met lots of radical people in my life who aren't radical at all you know it's like people who say I'm mad me and you go no you're not you're just a bit um sad really I think I am however independent so particularly my field of history is Christianity so it's the history of first century world New Testament history particularly but but the whole sort of panoply of stuff and of course I'm not a vicar either I'm not a I'm not an I'm not an academic I'm not a cleric you know I'm a I'm a writer so I have a story I find stories to tell and I try and tell them and I try and weave them together into an argument I suppose radical in the sense of you know the original meaning of the word radix which is to go back to roots you know I am interested in roots. I'm interested 
interested in where we've where we've come from, why we do the things we do, and the assumptions that we make about. Mm. We we make these assumptions so often that we've always been doing things in the same way, and it's just not true. So I'm I'm, I'm interested in that kind of stuff. But I have a lot of freedom, you know, from that point of view. Mm. Now a lot of your books they're presenting historical events, um, and I was wondering if you tell us a little bit about how you, in terms of the craft of writing, present historical events in a very accessible way. I've read some of your work. It, there is this sense in which you're able to capture the place, the sense of place, the sense of mood of, of, for the characters. I mean, we'll, I'll come on to characters in a minute, but just in terms of context and place, how, how do you do that? How do you go about really conveying that to the reader? Um, imagination. Imagination and facts. So f- learn as much as you can about the place and then imagine what is what you're like to be there. What, what are the sights, sounds, smells? Uh, how do they affect things? I think a lot of people don't do that, particularly in uh, biblical history, because it's got this layer of doctrine always involved. You know, there's always something else in there. If you look at the Bible, there's always whether or not people are, are making correct orthodox judgments. Sometimes the use of the imagination is frowned upon, but it can really unlock stories if you get it right. So I try I try to use my imagination to place myself there. And I think it's always, again, about the voice. I, you know, I know what my voice is now, I think, after, after so many years. I mean, there's always changes and influences that come in, but I know what I write like, as it were. And so I try and keep that. I think you, I think you have to have an honesty and authenticity about what you do. So just do it in your language. I think people can spot when you're putting something on. Mm. So I always try and do that, and I think that keeps it accessible as well. People know that I'm not clever enough to, to bamboozle them. <laughs> I think they suss that out fairly quickly. So, I mean, there's lots of things I could pick up on, actually, just in what you said there. Uh, you alluded to using the senses, and one of the, one of the podcasts that I've done in the past is just talking mm. about how, on the, on the kind of well-worn subject of showing, not telling, how actually you can use the senses to really show what's happening. Is that, that, is that a deliberate strategy with with your writing well always ask those kinds of questions um you know what is it put yourself in that scene put yourself in the the scene that you're trying to depict and look for the clues that are going to help you do that so i mean that's this is true not just of when i write but also when i go speaking and teaching and those kinds of things look for look for the physical descriptions look for all the mentions of objects i'll give you an example in the last week of his life his uh, life on earth jesus uh, was anointed at a place called bethany and there are various accounts of it, a couple of accounts of it in, in the Gospels. And uh, his, his, the perfume that was anointed on his feet was, is described in John's Gospel as nard. So all I did was check, ask the question, what's nard? What is it? And so you can actually find it. It's still on sale. It's, it's, we know it's spike nard. And it's a perfume that actually comes from the root of a yes. plant grown in the Himalayas. So that perfume's come a long way to get to first century Palestine. And I, what I did was I simply got hold of some um, essential oil of spike nard. And I just got what it smelled like. And, um, and so that's a great thing mm. always to do with a group of people is to suddenly go, well, here's, here's what that room smelled like. Because it's very pungent and very powerful. And it doesn't smell anything like what we imagine, really. It's very um, musky and almost bitter. So, mm. you know, that kind of opens things up. So I think you have to look for clues when you're writing sort of uh, either fiction or, or history and you're looking at a historical scene. If you're writing historical fiction, look for the clues. Always look for the mentions. Look for, look for anything that you can fix on that can, can put that... Uh, put that picture together really okay so we, we talked about a sense of place and, and connecting people with place and with mm. almost like the things that are around but I know as well that you're able to apply this sort of technique to, to the characters uh, when you're talking about people within your written work you bring us into those people and I've, I've got my own ideas about how you do that but I'm really interested to hear how mm. you explain how you do that how do you how would you make us feel like somebody from first century Palestine 
or, or I don't know, one of Jesus' disciples, or maybe if, whatever the historical context is that you're exploring. Well, I, I don't think you can ever, we can never really go back into their world. We can never think, nobody can ever really think like a Roman, for example. You just can't. Their world was so different. Their uh, mindscape was so different to ours that we can't really do that. I think what you have to look for is the connections. You have to look for where is an emotional connection between us and them and where we can make um, some comparisons to, 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 to unwrap that bit. Because there are, there are all kinds of emotions in the historical accounts that we can connect to. Jealousy, love, anger, rage, bitterness, failure, frustration. They're all there. And I think the other thing is to try and paint a picture of the society so people can place people within that society. It, it is difficult because, like I said, there's a way of thinking is so different to ours. I mean, in first century uh, Judea, for example, for, for Jewish people, everything is either clean or unclean. There's a whole cleanliness taboo thing that, that goes on, and everything is either clean or unclean. There's nothing that is neutral. And so you have to get into this way of thinking that for a Jew to meet a Roman is to meet somebody who can make him ritually impure and ritually unclean, and therefore there's a whole... Straight yeah. away, there's a barrier there between between the two. So that's quite it's quite a difficult thing to get over. I think I try and draw comparisons, and I try and just I try and use as much extra background material as you can. So I try and cast my net wide, widely. Look at art, look at poetry, look at look at sort of secular writing as well. Look at political writing and see what else that can tell us really. Mm. And maps, you know, you talked about place. So I think I've always been a big fan of maps. I've done atlases. Again, it's it's using your imagination to try and put that scene back together, and you just try and get as much information as you can and then and then paint the picture really and the, these sorts of tactics strategies that you're talking about they, they sound to me like you could apply them equally to fiction or non, non-fiction really if you're writing a piece of historical fiction you would do a lot of the same sorts of things to place your characters in into the context into the place and even as you create those characters, even if they were fictional, they, it would, you'd be doing the same sorts of things. Do you think that's, that's true? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's asking questions the whole time and using your imagination and uh, based on facts to find the answer. I think historical fiction is easier in one way and much more difficult in another. It's easier in the way that you, you can create your character's background. You can know all about your character because you've invented them, uh, assuming you're not talking about historic, an, an actual historical character. Yes, yeah. It's harder in another way because where are the limits? You know, the minute I describe describe my, uh, you know, Roman going out, leaving his uh, his home first thing in the morning. Think of what I've got to research just in order to get him to walk down the street. It's enormous what you'd have to do. I've never had the energy to do that. I've never had the ability to do that. Um, at least with history, you have some limits on, on what you have to kind of include, really. But mm. it's an imaginative process. So the more creative the writers, the better. But I think that's actually true in, in every field of writing. When you get a writer in other fields, even in scientific fields, if they've got a spark of imagination and creativity, they are much, much better communicators. They can do it much better. Yeah, and I think that, I think that's true. And I, I, I suppose the answer to the question why is that the case is all of the above, all of what you've been talking about, isn't it? Really bringing research underpinning to bring place alive, to bring characters alive, to bring context and place people into it. Yeah, and it's also making patterns. I mean, humans are pattern-making creatures. A, a metaphor is essentially a pattern. You know, it's a, it's a kind of connection between two things. Anyone who can who can create a great metaphor, an imaginative metaphor, can can really unlock uh, unlock a whole world. So. So, you know, I think it's, it's that kind of thing. It, being able to take a slightly broader picture, see the pattern, see the symbolism, make connections. And the other thing is to, uh, to, to read widely. I think, again, that the writers I like in whatever field are those who I sense have a hinterland, who have a lot of reading behind them and, and not just in their sphere. I've always kept notebooks all my life, really. I, I'm a, I, 
I realised the other day, actually, one of the reasons I became a writer is to because stationery is tax deductible, and um, you know, and so it feeds my stationery habit. But I've always kept notebooks. I've always been an omnivorous reader. I, I read all kinds of fields, and um, I try as hard as I can as a professional to always learn from what I'm reading and and just c- collect things, sort of, sort of like magpie like, just collect phrases, collect words, collect those kinds of things, because I think I think you can make connections with with it, which just helps you. Sort of broaden out, I think. Now, uh, both you and I have used the word um, authenticity or, or talking about being authentic in our work in, in the conversation so far. And I'm interested to know what that means for you because I've, I've spoken about authenticity in episodes of the podcast and talking about what I think to be a very, it's a very critical mm. thing for writers. What, what does being authentic in, within writing, within the craft mean to you? Well, I think for me, there's a number of things. I mean, I think it, I think it is about being true to your own worldview, to being true to your own, your own beliefs. It is about not being ashamed of who you are and your voice. I went through a phase when I started writing the history of really thinking, oh, you know, I could impress academics with this. And, and in fact, some academics have been very nice about it. But actually, of course, they were never going to read my stuff because they're reading the same sources that I'm reading in order to write the history. Why would they read mine? They're writing their own book. Um, but but I, I sort of desperately wanted to impress them. And I, I've, I came out of that, the other side, thinking... Actually, does, you cannot write that way. You can't write trying to impress people. You really can't. I mean, you can do it in advertising, mm. copywriting kind of stuff. But, I mean, in terms of your own work, my name is on the spine of the books. It has to be my voice. So, so there's that authentic voice that I really want in there. I want people to, to, to be able to, to know that this is truly me. And, and they can disagree with that. That's absolutely fine. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I'm not necessarily going to argue about it. You know, I tend to view if people want to argue with me, they can write their own books. Um, but, okay, I'm believing you. You know, it has to be you. It has to be authentically you. There is, I think there's nothing worse, actually. And I have done this as a jobbing writer in the past, about having a piece of writing come out and you think, I, I just, I wish I'd not done that. I wish I'd not said that. That doesn't sound like me. That's not right. So there's the authentic yes. voice. And then there's the authentic personality. Uh, and that means being honest I think I think part of the writer's role is to be honest particularly in my part my type of work I put myself sometimes it depends what, what writing I'm doing not so much in the history but in, in some of the other writing I do you know I, I have to be I have to be honest about things and it's our role a writer's role is to stick your head above the parapet and say things that people that need to be said and that, and that, that kind of thing that people go aha so somebody else feels like that to, to say what people are thinking in, in the best sense of that yes yeah and do you find in doing that um, th- I'm thinking particularly about other, other people listening to this who might write non-fictional but might be exploring particularly complex issues even in their fiction that sometimes you have an answer and sometimes you don't. Are you, are you, you know, is it sometimes you, you can present an answer, you can present a, something that you think might be, this is what you're kind of, this is what I've learnt, guys, this is what, how I think it works. And other things are, I don't have an answer to this. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. And it's, it's very true in uh, writing about uh, religion or about the Bible particularly, uh, because there are bits that nobody really understands. Nobody understands. Not the best expert in Old Testament or whatever really understands. There are bits of the Old Testament where the language is so old, so ancient, that nobody really gets it. Now, you know, what are we going to do with that? Are we going to pretend that's not the case? Are we all just going to skip those bits? Or are we just going to say, look, here's, here's the fact. It could be this, it could be that. I was always really keen on doing that. And one of the, one of the jobs I had quite a while ago was I, I wrote a thing called The Bible Book, which was a user's guide to the Bible. And it was kind of a commentary thing. And I remember the conversation in the offices at HarperCollins with the editor suggesting it to me. He said, I think what you should do is you should write a guide to the Bible. And I said, 
this is you know, madness. Are you mad? I'm not. I, I said what I said at the beginning. I'm not an academic. I'm not a cleric. I'm not a theologian. And he said, yeah, no, that's the point. They always write the guys of the Bible. You know, why don't you write one? So I, look, I went away and looked up. And part of what gave me courage to do that was, A, finding out what pe- people weren't sure what some things meant. So that kind of gives you courage. Because you think if even, even the experts are baffled by that bit, then I'm okay being baffled. And, and B, was the fact that so many guys of the Bible just skipped those bits. They just moved on to the next to the next subject and I really wanted to be honest about that so I, I put in a section called the tricky bits which just looked at certain bits and said well why why does it do that we don't know sometimes you know I don't think you lose anything about that and I think actually you connect with people who are who are themselves wondering about all that it's the writer's role to sometimes be doubtful in the best sense and sometimes to sometimes to say things that need saying so honesty and courage are the two kind of Watch. I, say, I say that because I don't think of myself as a courageous person, but a few years ago, another writer, friend of mine, sort of gave me those two words. He said, these are kind of what, what we need as writers, honesty and courage. So I've, yes, I yes. kind of um, have clung on to that. And I think that, that would apply to anybody sort of practising the craft, or any, any writer in any genre doing whatever they do. That, that I think it, it applies to yeah, universal, absolutely. isn't it? Um, now, you also briefly alluded uh, earlier on to uh, a phase in your life where you were writing some comedy. And I know that you have an interest in comedy, mm. and I I tend to think that comedic writing is extremely difficult mm. to get right. And I just wondered if you had some some observations on comedy and writing. How what have you found that works in that in that context? Well, it's comedy is one of those things that is it's very hard. Again, it's very hard to teach. I'm not sure you can teach it. You can teach people to get better at it, and you can look at certain techniques that will help, and you can give people some hints on how to get a bit of comedy and lightness into their writing. But original comedy is you either got it or you haven't, I think. And I have always had an ability to, and this may come as a surprise to the listeners to this podcast, who might have drifted off, <laughs> but I've always had an ability to make people laugh. And and I started out doing that, writing com- trying to write comedy. And again, I think this it's, it's interesting you raise that because it comes back into the authenticity. Because again, with the historical books, I kind of dialed back on that. It was a discussion I had with my editors who felt, well, we you don't need to keep doing the jokes, Nick. And um, so I, I felt okay about that. So I did a trilogy of books that were more straightforward, um, more straight comedy, but more straight history rather. And then I and then I thought I really want to laugh again. I really want to do some stuff that that is funny. And so I did a book called uh, A Nearly infallible history of christianity <laughs> which is which is a history of the church and um it, it's got a loads of jokes in loads of jokes and it's it but it's really i hope it's good history you know it's good solid history but it's got lots of jokes in and why because that's what i like it's me that's what i do when I speak, I put lots of jokes in. When I when I write, I just spot things that are funny. I don't put it on as a technique. You know, I don't deliberately think, right, I'm going to yeah. to to be, to be funny here. I, I ju- it just sort of happens, and so you might as well go with it, really. And again, that means risk in some respects. So there's some jokes in there that probably don't work, and there's some jokes in there that probably some people might think are rude. I don't know. Um, well, actually, I do know, and they do think it's rude. It's completely right. But it, but you know, I again, my barometer is what do I think is funny. What what do I think? What would I? And I, I don't. I wouldn't write anything that I wouldn't be prepared to say. One of the ways you can get just a little tip, if you, if you want to put a bit of comedy in, well, put jokes in. Find you know, find jokes and put them in. So funny stories like that. Use other people's material, not necessarily. Make sure you cite them. You know, so if you're yeah, using a story yeah. that somebody told, do that. But that's one way that it, that is easy. If something that you found funny, you can you can use that. Other than that, it's it, it, it's it's difficult. But a lot of it comes out in your tone of voice, and a lot of it just comes through who you are, really. I mean, one of the things I've noticed with your work is that some of your comedy 
is presented through a kind of self-deprecating attitude. So, like, it's your... I mean, even in the title of the book that you quoted, you know, you're mm. nearly infallible. Um, mm. So, you, Nick Page is not infallible, but he's nearly infallible. <laughs> <And laughs> I think well, it just ruins it, doesn't it? You can't have nearly infallible. It just doesn't work at all. You know, you're either infallible or you're not. Nearly is... is, is it's, like, it's like a almost unique you know it just doesn't work really. I think you're right there has to be some raw material there for people who write comedy there has to be something within them hardwired in almost to, 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 to work with but I wonder whether there are some t- little techniques and things that, that you can use Com- comedy is something that kind of springs deep from the soul doesn't it it doesn't it, it, it isn't open to a systematic approach very easily but I suspect there are probably some little tips and tactics that you can use even plays on words or whatever, and as you say, jokes. Yeah, old puns and all kinds of stuff. And you can learn to look for these things. And the funny thing is, as you go through life, you get better at some things and worse at others. So I'm, 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 I've got an interesting experience at the moment because I did a thing years ago called the Tabloid Bible, which was uh, Bible stories in tabloid newspaper style. And it was very popular. Um, it worked well. Um, so, you know, it, we, we used that kind of punning headline thing to retell Bible stories. Um, Arking mad, nutty Noah builds bumper boat in backyard, that kind of thing. You know, the, uh, dreadful puns <laughs> in there. Um, and um, I'm revising at the moment because uh, another publisher has been out of print for a while and a publisher wants to republish it. And I'm, re- I'm revising it and I'm finding it quite difficult to actually get back into that way of thinking. At that time, I could do that, and I, I wrote that book very quickly, actually, and I, I could just, I got into that mode of thinking. But to go back and suddenly do a form of comedy that you did 15 years ago is quite hard, because I don't really write in that way anymore. So I think like all writing, you know, if you want to get better at writing comedy, read a lot of very funny writers, see how they do it. Uh, you will find, what you'll find is when you analyse it, things go a little bit dead. Uh, it was a writer, E.B. White, said, I think, and I'm p- going to paraphrase, that, that sort of analysing comedy is like dissecting a frog. You, you can do it, but in the process the frog dies. And that's the thing, you know, there, there, there is nothing, there's few things less funny than books on humour. They just, <laughs> yeah, like it's you, hard, isn't it? It's hard. Yeah. yeah, it's like when you announce, I'm going to tell you a really funny joke. You've already undermined it. Yes, because, because it, it? people's expectations are too high. So, um, analysing comedy is difficult. But I would say read a lot of read a lot of funny writers. Find the one that connects with you. I mean, a, a lot of the writers I like are ones who use a kind of extreme humour and, and in their own voice. One of my favourites is, is Hunter Thompson, Hunter S. Thompson who had this very extreme voice. His his writing is always, in Spinal Tap turns turned up to 11, it's always like, over the top, complete hyperbole. And very funny because of that, because you sense that he's not taking himself that seriously within it. He's, he appears as though he is, but he isn't. Don't take yourself too seriously, I think. Self-dep- self-deprecation comes easy to English people anyway. Yes, um, yes. But, um, I should do, but I think that's a very British thing, actually. I was, I was talking to somebody the other day about the difference between an Amer- American humour and British humour, and Stephen Fry told this, tells this, uses this great analogy. He, he says, imagine there's a folk singer singing a really, really bad song, and uh, someone just walks up, grabs the guitar off him and smashes it to pieces. And he said, if you were American, an American comedian would want to be the one smashing the guitar. He said, a British comedian would, want, would really want to be the folk singer. Because <laughs> we love failure. <laughs> we find failure endlessly funny and, and, and human. Yes, endearing almost, I suppose. Yes. I think, I think that there is a, you know, we don't like people who take themselves too seriously. No. And so I think, I think at its, its fault, you can end up being too self-deprecating and not valuing yourself enough as a, as a writer, as a person. But I think it's probably better to err on the side of caution, assume you're an idiot, and then move on from there. Really. I mean... Th- Perhaps, perhaps a good summary of that. I'm just looking at your web page. Your your 
amusing quote from Pope Urban II, inventor of the Crusades. <laughs> Nick Page is wrong. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Our intelligence told us the Saracens had weapons of mass destruction. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which, otherwise, yeah. it's, just, it's just very funny. And I suppose has another ingredient in it, which is it's, it's quite a kind of pithy comment on a relatively contemporary topic, isn't it? Yeah, I'm so angry about that. So, you know, it's satire. It's another brand of comedy that, you know, we need to always use carefully, but it's very powerful. Now, I want to, to sort of change tack very slightly now. I know you're a fan of Anne Lamott's work, and I've heard you speak about her book, Bird by Bird, and uh, some of the people listening to this will know that book, some of them won't. But I, I, I wondered if you could just spend a minute or two and just tell us what, what you like about that book. What do you think we as writers can learn from it? Well, I'd say a, a couple of things. One, one, it's just very good advice. I mean, I think if you're writing fiction, for example, which is what it's aimed at really as novelists, it's, it's tremendously good advice. You know, in, in its very basic level, the uh, title comes from advice, I think, given to her brother by her father. Her brother was trying to write a book report or some kind of project on birds, and uh, he couldn't do it. He couldn't be staring at the blank page, and his father just said to him, well, just get on with it bird by bird, one bird at a time, bird by bird. And that's how you do as a writer. I, I, you, you just get on with it do it one line at a time and then the next line and then keep going and she's tremendously practical actually like that she talks about the well it's just what she calls the shitty first draft you might want to bleep that I don't know <laughs> <laughs> well I think I won't normally I'm really hot on expletives but that, but somehow somehow that captures it doesn't it yeah. And she says, you know, that just get it out. I've never had any real sympathy for writer's block. I, I'm sh- maybe there are people out there who are blocked. I don't know. Because I, I can't afford it, for one thing. I, you know, I don't have that luxury. I have to sort of write lines. And also, I just think, well, keep plowing forward. Just put the next thing down. Just write, uh, Hemingway said, write the next truest thing that you, you know. So just keep going. So it's full of it's full of practical advice. But but I think above all, it's very funny and it's beautifully written. And I like that. And her voice again. I keep on about voice. Voice is to me really really important to 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 have a texture to your writing so that people know it's you and that nobody else could have quite written it that way. To me, that's what you're always aiming at as a writer, is to find your voice. And it can take a long time to do that. So Anne Lamott doesn't really sound like anybody else. And, and you read a passage of hers and you just know it's hers. So, you know, that's one of my favourite books on writing, just because it's a pleasure to read in of itself, you know. Mm. And this issue of voice actually has really been brought home to me recently. Um, I quite recently interviewed uh, an editor for uh, the publisher Tor.com as a science fiction editor and he, he said something which I think as, again is, applies across all the genres I was, I was saying to him so what is, the mo- what is the most important thing you're looking for in work that comes across your desk and, he, and without hesitation he said I'm looking for voice uh, much more important than plot and mm. character and mm. setting and scene I mean there are only about four plots anyway aren't there really you know, so there aren't that many plots so <laughs> <laughs> voice is all you've got really yeah and I guess ca- so yeah I think that's exactly right you, you, when I think of the writers I admire the writers I love, nearly all of them have very distinctive voices. Um, George Orwell, you know a passage of George yes. Orwell when you see it. And, uh, you know, Charles Dickens, you know the, these people, their writing has this texture, this voice to it that you kind of recognise, you recognise their brush strokes, as it were. You know, you just know them. And uh, and that can, like, it's an amalgam, it's always an amalgam, so I don't know about you, but when I, when I read somebody, when I discover a new writer, and they've got a very distinctive voice, I do spend the next couple of days writing like them. Yes. Yeah. And then I have to kind of get that out of my system. You have to kind of work it out. Don't imitate, but, you know, learn. And um, so, you know, my writing has learned a lot. For example, my comedy writing has learned a lot from somebody like Terry Pratchett. So Pratchett, for me, used 
footnotes brilliantly and I've sort of learnt from that so footnotes are like a little aside you can use them to make little jokes and he, he used to do that a lot It's very encouraging to hear somebody who's a professional and established writer like yourself saying that they they have to do this thing where you know they kind of absorb somebody's writing style and then have to kind of work through it because I know it's, it's something that newer writers have to be wary of they read I don't know they read they read a bit of Hemingway and suddenly they suddenly they want to write like him yeah no adjectives so. yeah suddenly this you know spa, really spare ma- sparse ma- narrative is the way forward want to go out hunting zebra or something yes yeah. I, Again, I love Hemingway. Well, I like Hemingway, but I think I think the danger of it, of course, with such a strong voice like that, is it becomes a sort of caricature. And I think there was a point in Hemingway's work when he suddenly became Hemingway, and he started to write as Hemingway. And um, yes, it becomes too self-conscious, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. But I think there's always stuff to learn, isn't that so exciting about writing? There's always some, but there's always another great writer to discover. Yes. And there's always some little. There was always room for improvement, isn't there? I think even the the greatest writers say that that, that they haven't reached the pinnacle of their craft. There's still something else they can do. You, well, you kind of know that you haven't done it, uh, and even the best passage you've you've written, you know, you've probably left stuff out there unsaid, and so you're always teetering on the edge of of um, sort of inadequacy, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, that actually brings me quite neatly to the next thing I was going to ask you about because I noticed that you recently retweeted a quote from somebody quoting Arthur Miller uh, and he he said this he said the best work that anybody ever writes is the work that is on the verge of embarrassing him always <laughs> so um, yeah. d- does any of your work embarrass you or is it on the verge of it is that your best work yeah a lot of it embarrasses me um, I don't like reading my own work really I, again sort of revising stuff is, is hard because again you're always aware of how much you don't like about it you know how much you, you would want to change um, because you're a different person now to when you wrote it. So when you wrote it, you might have been doing the best work you can do, but then you've learned a lot more since then. So you're always aware of that. I think it's just, I, I read this thing the other day. This is a quote from a, a bishop, ex-bishop, called John V. Taylor, actually. He, said, um, he says this, Those who truly merit the name of artists know what they have created falls short of the truth and perfection they have seen, and they distrust the applause that tells them otherwise. I, I believe that we perhaps need to be kind to ourselves. You know that uh, we, we are terribly self-critical. You've got to be kind to yourself. You do the best job you can do. I always try and do the best, the best job I can do. Well, I say I always do. Probably not true, but most of the time I try and do the best job I can do. And be kind to yourself because we're striving to put into words a lot of stuff that can't quite be put into words. With history, for example, there's always more to discover. So, you, you and and also there's there's always something coming up that might just explode your carefully crafted theory you know there's a, some archaeologist digging away somewhere and he's, he's going to discover something that ruins your theory completely so you know be kind to yourself as well don't be too critical but I don't know there seems something awfully smug about like reading your books back and going that's marvellous gosh I was good I don't I don't I don't think I'd like to do that <laughs> well I suspect writers that do that have have then stopped learning they might have peaked and they probably peaked too early so um, just in general terms then and th- talking about writing now, what, what are the most important lessons, two or three lessons maybe, that you think you've learnt over the years? Um, so t- a couple of lessons. Always be learning. Always be learning. I've, I've emphasised that a lot. My wife has a wonderful phrase. She says the only difference between a, uh, an amateur and a professional is that a professional never stops learning. And I think that's a really good phrase. That's interesting, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I think you've got to keep learning. You've got to keep finding out new stuff. Keep, keep learning from everyone you read, you know. So read voraciously. Read widely. 
read outside the box, read outside your own subject, don't get narrow. You know, you have that broad hinterland of, of, of reading. And, yeah, and uh, just, just write. You know, I mean, a lot of people who say, oh, I'd like, I want to write a book, and you go, well, what, what, what's stopping you? Get on with it. You can't, I can't get, nobody can guarantee whether or not that book is published. But we're actually in a better place now if you want to find an audience than we've ever been. It's easier for a writer to find an audience than there has ever been. I don't, I don't think in some ways that the, the publishing industry is in a good place, but, I, but yeah, certainly that's from the point of view just a writer finding people to read their words, there's never been so much opportunity. And there's loads of things to do. So learn your craft, spend time on it, take it seriously. Don't sort of try and fit it in. Take it seriously. You know, if you really want to write, make time to write and book an appointment with yourself and make sure you do that. And as far as you can, don't identify with the work. You know, you are not the work. All right? You are a unique individual. If I can get all metaphysical here. You are a unique individual. You are a person. You are you. You are not your work. So when people critique your work or where they, when they say that, say things about it, when they praise it even, they're not, they're, they're praising your work. You know, you've got to be able to sort of pull yourself away from that a little bit. This is hard because you put a lot of yourself into that book. Yes. A lot yeah. that is you. You're offering it to the world. But, but you don't over-identify with it. And uh, is there any thought about the final bits of advice? I mean, we're going to move on in a moment, uh, actually, because I want to ask you about the publishing world, a couple of questions. But just in, in terms of the craft and writers and all that, is somebody who's an aspiring writer, is there any other bits, little bits of advice you'd want to give? Well, I, I say just take every opportunity you can, really. See, I've written for a lot of different things. I've done copywriting, I've, I write videos. I work part of my time now with a, with a campaigning organisation, writing for them, creating videos and resources for them. And I think that you have to kind of get out there. And everything you do feeds into the other bits of writing that you do. I don't think you should divorce one from the other. I've always been interested in writers who worked as copywriters who then wrote a book. You know, Dorothy L. Sayers was one of those who... She, um, you know, was an advertising copywriter and then sort of started writing. And I'm sure she learned an awful lot as an advertising copywriter. Uh, so so don't, don't sort of disdain these things. Just try and learn from them, really. Now, you mentioned publishing just now. I mean, what is your view on the state of publishing now? Just for those who are listening, we're, we're having this conversation at the beginning of July 2015. What's happening in publishing from your point of view? And how, how should writers navigate that business? Yeah, I, publishers are funny people, publishers. They're not <laughs> risk... Well, they are risk-takers in a sense because they're money. But uh, it's hard to convince them sometimes to do something new. So they tend to want to do what somebody else has done. That's understandable. It's a business, you know. And that, but I think since the recession, publishing has got more nervous... Publishing doesn't really know what's happening. And, and, and in fact, not many people in the writing industry do know what's happening because we don't really know the effect of digital yet. You know, I think it's too early to say. We don't know whether ebook sales are going to carry on accelerating, whether they're going to plateau. I hear different figures from different people about that. Nobody quite knows what's happening. We're the last of the major media industries to really face the challenges of digital. You know, all the others have done it and been... And been badly affected in, in some yeah, ways. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the music business certainly got, has got badly burned by it, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Publishers, I think, are anxious about that. So I, I, I have in the past sensed 
not with all publishers, but most of the ones I work with are great. But but you know, there's a there's a little bit of conservatism with a small C about sort of trying sticking to well tried things, and that's, I understand that they're, they've got to make money. So yes. I think, but we can't really as writers afford, in a way, to let ourselves get down that way. We, I've got to keep doing new things, and I want to keep doing new things, and I don't want to ride on people's um, coattails and just copy somebody else's idea or repackage it. I think I think the big sufferers are bookshops more than publishers. I think publishers are doing okay, and they'll you know, but books. Bookshops are, are, are struggling. Having said that, again, there's good, there's encouraging signs with that. I don't believe in the death of the book. I think books have been around a long time. There's something about a physical book, an object, that I think is is pretty kind of embedded in our culture. And I think it's going to take a long time before that changes. You're talking there about a physical book rather than... You're not talking about the concept of a book. You're talking about... No, no, no. I'm talking about the actual physical object, the thing the thing with pages in and, and paper and which smells like nothing else and which is, is just a glorious object. I think, yeah, I might be slightly going over the top here, but... I'm we know what you mean. We know what you mean. It's a thing of beauty, isn't it, a book? Um, yeah. A good, decent book that smells like a book, feels like a book. Books look different. You know, they designed the book, the typeface. I've always, I've, you know, I've been interested in design and type, typography, and I take a lot of care over that. So, so books can be beautiful in the way that, as physical objects, in the way that the other media can't really, um, you know, except maybe for ceramics and things like that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe, I'm sure you're right, actually. But then, you know, but started out as ceramics, didn't they? Because well, they did, didn't they? Yeah. Putting little marks on tablets of clay. Anyway, there we go. So let's come back to some of your work. Now, I know you recently wrote a kind of commentary travelogue on the book of Revelation from the Bible, uh, which is a pretty pretty wacky book by by most definitions. Mm. Well, what what did you learn <laughs> from that? I mean, did you manage to make any sense of that at all? Uh, yeah, I think I did. I think... Well, I hope I did, anyway. Otherwise, it was a complete waste of few, quite a few months of my life. Um, again, I think it comes back to, to a bit of what we were talking about earlier. Is how, do, how do you use the imagination in recreating things? And, obviously, Revelation is an intensely imaginative work. I mean, this is this is a work with, you know, s- small sort of armoured locusts with beards in and with, uh, a, you know, a man with huge white hair and a sword sticking out of his mouth. This is this is a book with dragons and, you know, seven-headed beasts and uh, all kinds of stuff. It's a cracker, isn't it, really? It sounds, it does it's, it's an amazing book. It's a brilliant book. So, but equally, it's a book in a particular culture. So to try and put yourself imaginatively in that culture and say, who was the writer of this? What was his situation? Yes, yeah. What was he actually... You know, what was the political situation, the social situation at the time? And also, what's the geographical situation? So well, the difference with that is I, I, I went to Patmos, which is where John was when he saw, when he saw this vision. And I also travelled through a bit through Turkey. And so I tried to, I tried to talk about the book in, in, in those terms and to tell the story of my travels as well, because I thought that would make it more accessible mm. to people and more fun, mm. really, and, and, and see whether that opened things up. And, and just going to the island actually does open things up immensely, really, because Patmos is weird. It's a weird place. And... Uh, uh, you can kind of see why why somebody might have visions in that place. It's, it's it's a lunar landscape in the Mediterranean, so it's very strange. But it's um you know I I, I thought that would that again is a way of just try and find an inventive way of approaching things. I've always, I always used to go when I was thinking about new books. If I had a subject I wanted to write on, I wish used to go into a different section of the bookshop to see what other books are like. So, you know, you'd, you, if you had to write on... I mean, the Bible book, which I mentioned earlier, is an example of that, that I spent quite a lot of time looking at travel guides 
because I was thinking, what do people have in their house? They have travel guides more than anything else. Yes, so yes. In terms of guidebooks. So I would look to them, see, how can we apply some of what they do to writing about the Bible? And could I take a, a travel book approach, a travel literature approach, and talk about Revelation? Yes. You, talk, you spoke to me earlier before we started recording about some of the other projects that you're working on. What are you working on? In terms of writing, what are you doing at the moment? What projects are you working on at the moment? Well, I've got a book coming out in August, and um, it's called The Dark Night of the Shed. And it's, <laughs> it's a book about uh, men and midlife and spirituality, and how the things that happen to us in midlife, the calls, the, the, the questions that we get, the issues that are raised, are, are, are an invitation to a different way of life, in fact. And I, I did, the way I did that, I, I was very inspired by a television programme called Shed of the Year. I don't know if you've seen it, it's marvellous. I, um, I actually have seen a little bit of Shed of the Year, which just stays this side of parody, doesn't it? it, it it's, 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 it's I genius. think it's one of the great monuments of televisual civilization. It's, it's, up, it's up there with Kenneth Clark's Civilization and Bronowski's The Ascent of Man and anything that was done. You know, you put all those four together, with, three together with Shed of the Year and you've got basically the glories of television. And so, you know, <laughs> but Men and Sheds, there's something there, isn't there? Something of, and I, yes, so I yes. kind of had this vision that my life would be made fantastic if only I had a perfect shed. So I set out to, so I set out to sort of rebuild my shed. And so it tells the story of me rebuilding the shed, but also me exploring okay. what is life, you know, that, that central um, question of midlife, is that it? And looking at kind of what the Bible has to say about that and, and, and the narratives we tell. Yes, you. So yes. it, it comes back to what we were saying earlier, because there's, there's masses more of me in that book. That's a book where I've really tried to be honest about myself. And so I'm a bit nervous about it really you know putting myself out there a bit but um right you've got to i think you've got to you've got to be brave really. mm. i've just thought of something as you were speaking that there's actually a lesson there for a lot of writers who are wanting to do autobiography or memoir and a lot of people do and in my experience when i've when i've, I've worked on writing projects where i've helped people write their stories and they underestimate the cost to themselves the emotional cost i mean of exposing mm. themselves in that way and revisiting things in their lives and exactly yeah. the kind Absolutely. of self-examination and actually not just that but then to present it to the wider world you know in, in, in book form is actually very emotionally expensive isn't it yeah well it depends on how you know on, on what, where the journey's taken you I, th I think if you're still in a sort of mm. if you're still not in a, if you're not as the californians say in a good place you know <laughs> if you're not there then i think that can be very very hard. I think if you've come through it a bit and have a, a more secure idea of who you are, then you have the courage to be open and honest to people. And people respond to that. That's the thing about um, vulnerability. Yes. When, people yeah. are, when, when people are vulnerable and express that vulnerability and, and use that, that vulnerability to look at the world in a certain way, then I think people re really respond to that. And there's something wonderful about people who are prepared to sort of be slightly broken in order to, to, to let the light shine through. And I think that's really important. Mm. And now uh, that book is out next month, August 2015. August, yeah, it is okay. out, yeah. So I'm, I, I'm a shed's done. Your shed is done. I was trying to do this interview in the shed, but I couldn't get the Wi-Fi to work. Oh, so, I, so, so this is, a, this is the, not just a kind of very simple shed with no electricity or no light or no anything you could and just a few garden tools you could sit out there and create great things 
Well, it was intended to be. I was, I was at this thing. I mean, okay, here's the, the other thing as writers. Uh, I don't know if this is a bloke's thing. It might be. But, um, you know, we always think that the next tool is going to solve things for us. Yes. You know, the next book I read is going to solve things. The next manual on how to write is going to get my book published. The next piece of software is going to, you know, or, you know, the next notebook I write is going to turn me into, I mean, moleskin notebooks, you know. You really do think you've arrived when you've got a moleskin notebook. Everybody has a moleskin because apparently Chatwin used them, you know. Despite the fact it's a completely different firm, but you think you think by using that you will be Chatwin or you will be Hemingway. <laughs> you won't. You will be you with a black notebook. You know that's just it. Um, and I, and I think I always felt that if I had a shed to write in, then I would be. You know that's that's kind of like the writer's retreat, isn't it? You know you'd have that. You'd be like Dylan Thomas in his shed overlooking the lawn, or George Bernard Shaw in his summer house, or any of these people. Um, and of course, actually, you're just you in a shed. You're not any better or any worse than you were before. So, it, but it, the shed took a slightly different turn anyway, which I won't tell you about. But it's in the book. Um, it ended up being. It is a place that I go and write now, and it's great. But it's it's more than that. Really. It's more than that. It's a metaphor. That's what it is. <laughs> it's, it's, it's more than a shed, it's a metaphor. People need to buy the book to find out the shed's destiny, don't they really, I think? The shed's destiny, yes, I see. There's a website as well, but I haven't got it quite running okay. yet, but it'll be up, um, which is darknightoftheshed.com. Darknightoftheshed.com, well, um, yeah. I don't know, where, where, do, would you know when that's going to be up and running? Is that in August as well? Uh, I don't know, i better try and get it up fairly soon, do not I? Soon there'll be something there. Go there and you'll find something. Okay, the end, that, was, that spurred you on to good works. So okay. I can't tell you what at this stage. Okay. <laughs> So, um, is there anything else that you're working on at the moment? Are there any other projects? Um, no, I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm revamping the uh, tabloid Bible, which is interesting. Then I'll get on to the next sort of project, which I'm not sure quite what it is at the moment. I, I work a lot with a, with an organisation called Open Doors, which is an organisation that supports um, persecuted Christians around the world. And again, that's great because, you know, one of the things you need to do as a writer is find an outlet for your outrage. You know, you creatively get outraged. It, it produces some really good writing. And so... Yeah, so there's quite a lot to get outraged about on that subject. So that's quite yes. good. And it also, yes. it's great as a writer to do stuff that you think is going to make a difference. That's really good. So that's, that's nice. So I'm doing a lot with them. And then... You know, I know I've got to do another book because I've, <laughs> I've had the money for it, but I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh, but editor doesn't need to do. But uh, yeah, so uh, <laughs> you've got the advance. You better start writing. Yeah, we, uh, I think it might be another nearly infallible book, but uh, we we we'll won't see. We we'll won't see how that how that comes out. And in terms of speaking and what kind of what speaking engagements have you got coming up? Where can, where can people come and hear you? Oh, I don't. I haven't got many actually at, at the moment. Um, I think if you check out my website which is nickpage.co.uk. You can normally find stuff on there. But um, I haven't got many speaking gigs at the moment. I'm going to be doing a writing course later in the year, Lakes Writing Course, and we're talking there. And then um, I'm going to... What am I going to... I think I'm doing some. I'm doing some stuff for people. I'm going to Belgium to speak. Why am I going there? No, Holland. Anyway, it's over there. Oh, okay. Find out eventually. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, Somewhere abroad. Yeah. So I mean, I, I do want to mention. The fact that you are indeed coming to talk at the, the course, uh, I'm one of the people that's organising that in November, which is the one that you've alluded to. If people like the sound of you, they can come and meet you in person at the uh, first page course, as it is now called. Um, no relation to you, Mr Page, yep. but there you go. Um, yeah. In November in the Lake District, and people are interested in that, they can just... Uh, <laughs> check that out go to my website andrewjchamberlain.com and there's a page for the course there so your extensive body of work that already exists there nick books and the like 
where can people go to find them? Um, nickpage.co.uk. Um, okay. Or go to a well-known online uh, retailer who have now decided to pay their taxes, <laughs> uh, and you can type in my name, and lots, lots of stuff will come up. Yes. Uh, you know, reams of stuff. Um, yeah. So those, those are the places you can go um, to find out, really. Okay. So we're drawing to a close now. Is there anything else that you? wanted to say to those who are listening uh, about the craft of writing particularly I guess or uh, any other final bits of wisdom from Nick before we finish Um, no just get on with it get on with it fire up the computer hit the keyboard and start writing okay to to use a phrase from one of the other writing podcasts that's around you guys listen to this you're out of excuses now so you need to go and write okay Nick well thanks you very much for your time Nick it's been a pleasure talking to you Um, so that's if people want to find out more about Nick it's www.nickpage.co.uk as he'll be speaking at our course in the Lake District in November okay Nick thanks very much cheers thanks ever so much bye bye bye